Welcome to The Spot, KALW's weekly space for the best in public radio podcasts and storytelling. I'm your host, Ashley Ann Krigbaum. For almost a month now, I've been hearing a new sound in my Oakland neighborhood. From inside my house, it's pretty faint, but when I open my back door, The loud blades of helicopters and the sirens of dozens of police cars bombard my small back porch. I'm used to hearing one or the other on any given night, but not this many, and not together like this, and not for so many days and weeks in a row. This is a new sound for me. If you're in downtown Oakland, you might have heard this instead. Or, if you were in front of the Oakland Police Headquarters earlier this week, it was more like this. Since last month's verdict not to indict police officer Darren Wilson for fatally shooting Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, demonstrations have been happening steadily here, thousands of miles away in San Francisco and Oakland. My friends and family who don't live here have asked, so when will the protesting and demonstrations end? They've got to stop sometime. And I realized that I don't know. Not just when they'd stop, but if they ever will. I mean, what would it take for people to feel like positive change is actually on its way? Like a lot of people, I've turned to media outlets searching for answers to that question. And I heard one podcast episode recently that did a great job covering the big questions that were left with in the wake of last month's verdict in Ferguson. Today on the spot, I want to play for you that podcast episode in its entirety. The Canadian magazine, The Walrus, produces their own podcast featuring stories from contributing writers, hosted by CBC producer Chris Berube. And in this, their most recent episode, Chris sat down with journalist Desmond Cole, who spent time in Ferguson last month reporting on police response to activist demonstrations. In their conversation, they don't answer all the big questions, but I think they do a pretty good job in trying. This podcast contains some coarse language, so if you're listening with small children, you may want to keep that in mind. Also, this interview was recorded the day before the non-indictment of a police officer in the killing of Eric Garner, so it doesn't come up during the piece. Just to let you know. Before I went down, I was expecting demonstrations, confrontations with police. I was prepared for things like tear gas and, you know, I brought my goggles and I brought some equipment to try and protect myself. I was mostly focused on conflict, I would say. That's what I was bracing for. That's not what happened. Desmond Cole is a journalist based in Toronto. He arrived in Ferguson, Missouri, the day after the grand jury's decision not to indict Officer Darren Wilson in the shooting death of Michael Brown. Over the course of the next six days, Desmond met a lot of people in and around Ferguson, and he wrote about them for the Walrus blog. He also recorded a lot of tape. Today on the Walrus podcast, Desmond Cole with letters from Ferguson. Peace. 
lots of good is able to come out of this Fantastic. Hallelujah. When we work together with you. You just heard me say six white women, three white men, two black ladies, and one black man. Do the math. Six plus three is nine. They got the nine they needed not to indict. Picture Main Street with a big season's greeting sign hung across the top of the road. Hardware store, yoga studio, a couple bars, big old police department. And the police department was the focal point. You have National Guard uh, convoys rolling up and down South Florissant Street. You have South Florissant Street being blocked off at any given time by the police so that traffic can't come through. You've got a line of military backing a line of police officers standing in front of the police station at all times. You've got dozens of cameras of major media, people with their cell phone cameras, people with um, goggles and face coverings preparing for the possibility of tear gas. But it was a controlled tension. Let me put it that way. People were angry. People were out in the street. But it was not chaotic. And it was sad. You know, I I remember heading there and reading before I went that on the night of the decision not to indict, they actually had snipers on the roof of that police building. They were training weapons on their own people because they were in their street exercising their First Amendment rights. It was sad. And the verbal abuse that you're watching soldiers, police officers take because they are now a manifestation of the state that let this guy go and that they're receiving all of this punishment from people who are so angry and so frustrated. recording of a flash mob protest that you were at that happened inside and outside of a Walmart on Black Friday. What did you notice about the conversations you were having with people that you met around Ferguson? Specifically, did you notice there was a difference in the conversations you were having with white citizens and black citizens in Ferguson? What I noticed overall, and this is a generalization, overall, if you were black, 
you were probably going to talk about the conduct of Officer Darren Wilson. And that doesn't mean that every black person believed that he was guilty of murder. Not at all. But every black person brought up his behavior. That was the focal point of their analysis of this situation. I did not meet one white person in Ferguson, in the surrounding St. Louis area, who didn't mention property destruction, vandalism, looting, not one. Now, many black people mentioned that as well. Um, They would mention it to say, now, I don't support that because they were trying to, so here come the caveats now. I don't support the looting and the vandalism and the rioting because there's a bigger thing going on here that maybe I do support or there are other parts of it that I do support. Um, But I didn't hear... um, I didn't hear white people saying I don't support that, but I simply heard them condemning it. And talk of Darren Wilson for white people in Missouri was an afterthought. But when it came to that, it was always like, you know, I kind of think he did his job or police have a tough job or maybe kids should learn how to talk to police. So you see the orientation of where people were coming from depending on race, for sure. They should, they should... Be more respectful of their city because they're burning. What they're what they're going to have is nothing. And ninety five percent of the protesters and the people that are out there that are throwing bricks and are being violent, the violent ones, they don't have anything to lose anyway. I guarantee you, they don't have jobs. They don't have nothing. Nothing else. They don't have anything to do but try to get caught and try to get a place to stay for the night. Because there's no reason why they're burning down their city because of what happened. That does not make sense. Michael Brown got shot. I'm sorry he got shot. Officer Wilson did his job. So let's defend his death by burning down the city he grew up in. That'll make sense. That was a Ferguson resident named Tim speaking with Desmond outside of a boarded up store on Black Friday. Um, Desmond, could you put those comments into context for me? This is the specter of black violence that frames so much of what was going on down there and and white fear of black violence that says we always have to be worried about black people getting too upset and doing irrational things, whether it's Mike Brown walking on the street, whether it's the response to Mike Brown being killed, whether it's five grown men on a football field putting their hands in the air. The St. Louis uh, Police Association equated them making that gesture in solidarity with them endorsing the idea that Darren Wilson was a murderer. They're just like, we're supporting the people in this community who support us. That's what their explanation was. But that specter that, you know, at any moment, you know, these people could incite a riot or they could, that was always there. It was ever present. And it really characterized a lot of what I saw and experienced. You stayed longer than a lot of media did. Like you kind of stayed a couple days after, you know, CNN probably packed up their cameras and spent a lot of time, you know, in the black community. I I want to talk a little bit about Paul Davis specifically, who you talked to. Can you tell me about Paul Davis? Paul was one of my favorite people that I met down there. Paul's a cab driver. He's um, in his 60s. Paul's what people like to call a straight shooter. And uh, I really appreciated his perspective because he was willing to be honest in a way that almost no one that I met was. I mean, 
he was one of those people, for example, who while he decried the uh, the exoneration of Darren Wilson, also said that he thought that Mike Brown was a bully. And he's a black man, right? And so this is the the the, the diversity and the nuance in, in people who are not just looking at things in a one-sided way and who are saying perhaps that there's blame to go on all sides, even if I'm taking a strong stance ultimately on what happened here. I can tell you what was in that punk mother man. Ain't no gonna hit me in the face and get away with it. Yeah, we, we all have to wonder what was on his mind when that was all going on, right? He was a bully though, man, I'm gonna tell you. He was a big kid who was using his size to push people around. Yeah. And his parents should have talked to him, should have taught him about that. Let's face the facts now. Let's tell it like it really is. That's Paul. He's a veteran and a cab driver that you met in Ferguson, Desmond. Uh, we talked earlier about the different comments you heard from white uh, and black people in Ferguson. But I get the sense you were writing that some of the people wanted to leave race out of this conversation, that some people were trying not to see Michael Brown's killing in the context of police brutality against African-Americans. It's really hard to talk about race in America because white people don't want to and white people control all the microphones. Okay, So black people are looking at what they're doing and they're going, if I make this about race, are these powerful people who we need to listen to us, are they going to listen? No, they're probably not. The world who's watching is probably going to get turned off and not want to listen if I make this about black people and about race. Um, So that was some of it. Other parts of it were people trying to get us to a universal. They were saying it should not be about race. Even if it is, it shouldn't be because every person who is an American should have the same rights and should have the same freedoms. So... Then that's what you would hear from some people is that like they don't deny that race is involved, but they would rather focus on their role in the society as Americans fighting for civil rights and justice than as black people doing so. However, there were a lot of people who were very comfortable in owning this as an issue of race and in saying you can't look at it without discussing race, even if that makes people upset. And I think those people were much more likely to say, we're not talking to white establishment America, we're talking to our black brothers and sisters, and we want them to get it. And we're not worried about how the message is going to be perceived by others. That's a hymn from the NAACP service that you wrote about in your last post for The Walrus. Could you set the scene for me there? Yeah. So it was a beautiful, uh, very warm Saturday. And I went to an old church. This is a church founded uh, two years after the end of the Civil War. You know, the NAACP um, local, um, state chapters from around the area, and even the national president are all at this church. And they have a service to kind of 
you know, buoy people's spirits and give them a send-off because they're about to embark on a 120-mile, that's about 200 kilometers, seven-day march from Ferguson and specifically from the spot where Mike Brown was killed to Jefferson City. And Jefferson City is where the governor uh, resides and operates out of, and they have some messages for the governor that they'd like to see the Ferguson police chief removed and that they'd like to see some rules around racial profiling in the state to be changed. So they all gather in a church, have a beautiful, beautiful church service. Um, I admit I completely broke down and cried during that church service because it was very emotional and beautiful. And, um, and I'd been taking in images and stories for five days of people who were really suffering, you know, and I think that that, that was the moment when it really finally got to me. So Desmond, what happens after the service when all these people, they get on a bus, they drove down to Canfield Street, that's the street where Mike Brown was shot, and they start to march. What happened at that point? They were uh, greeted by an unsuspecting mostly group of local residents who were keeping watch around this vigil for Mike Brown and who, I didn't meet one person there who knew that the NAACP were coming through. They had no idea that this was going to be the place where they were starting this march, let alone what the march was and what its objectives were. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of shouting. There was a lot of, who do you guys think you are coming down here to our neighborhood now? And we've been out here for months protesting this young man's death, and you show up today, and you bring cameras with you. Who do you think you are? And, you know, that was a difficult thing to have to see. Because you're looking at people who are struggling and grieving and who are all in their own way looking for answers and who are now turning on each other and, 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 and asking each other not just difficult questions, but really kind of questioning each other's motives in some cases. I, I, I'll say that the, the people in the town, in, in the area, were questioning the motives of the organizers of the NAACP. So what happened next was fascinating because, you know, the march had to continue, and many people continued on through after several minutes. But many of the NAACP organizers stayed, and there were also people who were there who were from all over the country. And I started talking to people, and there were people from North Carolina, and there were people from New York, and Kentucky, and Colorado, and California. And in one way or another, they had all come from Illinois across the border of Missouri. They had come to show their solidarity, and they had come to this site because that street, Canfield uh, Drive, had just been opened up by the police. That whole area where many buildings were burned and many businesses destroyed. I say, I say boarded up, but the roads had been closed as well. The roads only opened right before the NAACP started marching. So people who had been waiting to get in there to see this memorial all came in. And so you have this big procession of NAACP leaders, but then people from all over the place, also coming in at the same time, confronting these residents who are, they're not ready for any of it. People started talking. Uh, the anger and shouting gave way to listening, gave way to people saying, we know you're angry, we understand why you're angry, we're here to support you, how can we help you guys? And that turned to the residents telling them, we need you to come down here with food. We couldn't get out of here and all the businesses are burned down. And so you have to walk a mile to get something to eat. And we could have used some help. Come down here when it's raining and see how we're doing. There are elderly people who can't walk the mile to go get the food. 
come help us out. And it ended with people hugging, people exchanging contact information, people exchanging promises to return, and really connections actually being made, like really for real people saying, I didn't come all the way down here from Kentucky just for a photo op. I actually want to know how you're doing in six months. I'm getting emotional just telling you about it right now because that was so powerful. Um, because people really do care about what's happening to people in Ferguson. They relate. They want to help. And that was what I saw over and over again. Do you feel like there's there's a support network for these people in Ferguson after this after next week, after all the cameras have gone home? I think that there's great potential for that. Um, I also think that the protests that got all this attention in the first place are not going to stop. I'm I'm pretty convinced of that from the conviction that I saw of people and from the fact that must be made always central to all of this, that they've been doing this for four months now. This is not new. It was new for everyone last week when a big indictment was going to come down and they thought they were going to see some people get tear gassed. Then it was new for them. It's not new for the people who are down there. So they didn't stop two months ago. They didn't stop one month ago. They're not going to stop as far as I can see. So let's call this what it is. This is a movement. It's not burning cars in Ferguson or burning buildings in Ferguson. Something important is happening in terms of the safety of black people and the value of their lives in that country. And they're responding. I feel like here in Canada, there's this sense of deflation, but there's also kind of the sense of judgment towards America that people are saying, you know, look at how crazy things are in America right now. Do you think it's reasonable for Canadians to take that kind of perspective on America? Well, was it reasonable for people to say, wow, look at those crazy Americans? No, it's not reasonable, but it's one of our favorite games in this country. But let's remember the names of Sammy Yatim, shot at nine times by a police officer after being alone on a closed streetcar. Let's remember the name of Michael Elegon. Let's remember Jeffrey Rodica. Let's remember Junior Manon, all killed by police. What did we do? So I think that the problem that we have in this country is that because we think that we're better than the Americans, we're not paying attention to what's happening in our own backyard. We're not marking the names of the people who are this is happening to here, and we're not honoring the value of their lives, even as we continue to look at America and say, look how much better we're doing. When you were in the service uh, on your last day, they sang the hymn, Justice is Coming. How did you feel when that hymn started? Well, I told you I had a big breakdown in the church that day. Cried a lot. Um, I was so emotional because um, I want the words of that song to be true, that if people keep fighting, 
if people keep marching, if people keep praying, that they will find justice. I don't want to have to go through airport security or border services and be wondering what's going to happen when the police start walking up to me. I don't want that as a journalist and as a human being. Um, but I experience those things. Black men experience those things. Black people, black families. Stopped, questioned, searched, sometimes beaten, in the worst cases, killed. I was crying a lot that day because I was really reflecting on how hard people are fighting for justice and it's still not there. And uh, when you recognize that it's a tough moment, but you don't give up, you don't, you don't stop, right? Because the song's correct. You, you, you keep fighting, you keep believing that justice is going to come soon, and you try to create the conditions in which people can understand these stories to bring about a more just world. Desmond Cole is a Toronto journalist and a staff writer for Torontoist. You can see all of his Ferguson coverage on the Walrus blog, thewalrus.ca. This podcast was edited by Tori Allen. All of the audio was taken by Desmond Cole in Ferguson. The online editor of The Walrus is Matthew McKinnon. Thanks for listening. For The Walrus, I'm Chris Berube. To find out how you can download other episodes of The Walrus Podcast, visit thewalrus.ca. That's it for today's episode of The Spot. Special thank you goes out to KALW's Ted Muldoon and Jeremy Dalmas for their protest recordings featured earlier in the show. You can find this episode and more at KALW.org. Look on the homepage for the little blue letters that spell out the spot. And tell me what you want to hear on the spot. 
If you have a suggestion for a podcast we should feature, please drop me a line at the spot at KALW.org. I hope you have a fantastic holiday if you're into that sort of thing. And I'll see you in two weeks right back here on the spot, only on KALW San Francisco. 